0: Turn the mic on if you want it to work. Sorry about that. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51 is where we're going to be this morning. And while you're turning there, let me ask you, how many times have you heard someone say in your life, um, well, go clean yourself up? I've heard it a lot. Uh, the reason I've heard it so often is you, you kind of have, you know, the stuff you do where you spill something on your shirt And you go and show your mom, and your mom's like, okay, well, (laughs) go clean yourself up. Uh, It's come out of my mother's mouth a lot. Rachel doesn't really say it to me in the same way. uh, as I'm an adult now, obviously, but also, you know, you can say a lot with an eyebrow. Kind of like a still, you know, shucks, bud. You've been eating like daily your whole life. You still can't figure this out because you bite into something or whatever, and there's a dribble. Uh, soup spoons, the depth on soup spoons is not uniform. Sometimes it's a normal spoon. Sometimes it's way deep and you don't realize and you just pour it all over yourself. And if you do uh, spill something on yourself, yeah, you got to clean it up. There's been a lot of times where I've spilled food. You you do work, you get grease, you, you get cut. Maybe you get a little blood. Maybe you're not feeling so great. You get a little vomit or snot or something. You get something on your shirt and you got to clean it up. And I always took it to mom or now to my wife, Rachel, maybe a little light sexism there. But they always seem to know what you're supposed to do with that stain on that fabric. Just having an eye for, well, that's cotton. You're going to need to go ahead and put it straight in the washer. Or you know, we can get away with a little rubbing on that. Or definitely don't rub that. Or we got to spray it or whatever. They seem to know how to get the spot out. And generally it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm somebody who has a lot of like shirts that have become paint shirts. I have a lot, I paint like maybe twice a year, but I have a lot of paint shirts cuz you like a shirt, you don't want to get rid of it, but you can't really wear it anymore. And if you get a stain, it's not that big of a deal. But if you understand maybe maybe you know a little bit about what Psalm 51 is about, the the kind of stain that the scriptures are interested in helping with. Are much deeper than just the, the stuff that we get on our clothes. If you come this morning and you have a little bit of self awareness about what the Christian religion talks about, then you understand that, that we're about grace and we're about forgiveness. We're about the mission of Christ, what he came to do. But all of that stuff presupposes a problem that has to be fixed. He doesn't come to the rescue for people who don't need to be rescued. There are stains on your hands, on your heart, that have to be addressed. And the way that they're cleaned, the way that we go about seeing those things cleaned or expressed to us beautifully in this this psalm, Psalm 51. It's, It's written by a king, a guy named David, who is a famous person in Scripture. This King David was famous... For being a king, he's known as kind of the main king of the people of Israel, until, of course, Christ. He was the one who led them into their golden age. He was a conqueror, but he was also a lover. He was a poet. He wrote many of the psalms that we have. and he didn't just write them in the sense of kind of like commissioning them. It's not just written in his honor. He, the king, was also a singer. He was also a poet. He wrote these beautiful words. Psalm 23, if you remember, is is a, a psalm that he's written that's probably among the most famous passages of Scripture people from outside the church have ever heard. But he wrote this psalm, and he wrote it because he was also, apart from being just a king and a poet, he was also, like us, he was a sinner. He was famous for being a sinner. I mean, the stories you may know of him or him dancing as they bring the ark into Jerusalem or him standing up to a giant with just a sling and a stone. But if you know enough scripture to know those stories, you probably know enough to know that he also desired a woman that was married to one of his soldiers, one of his mighty men. And while the guy was off, he desired the wife and so he took her. He thought he would just hide it, but she became pregnant. And to try and cover the sin further, he had the guy killed. So he added to his adultery slash rape, murder. He was somebody who understood (laughs) some of the heights of what it is to follow God, to be used by God. So much so that Christ is, he's showing the world that he is King David or he is the one that God promised to bring through David's line and be the capital K King. He's an archetype and he's gone as far as about any of us when it comes to sin. Jesus in the New Testament talks about if you commit adultery with somebody in your mind, even if you don't act it out, it's still adultery. If you commit murder on somebody in your mind, even if you don't act it out, it's still murder. Well, if you're a king, the distance between want and action is pretty short. So before we judge him, I think we want to be quick to actually see ourselves in him. The thing about stains that you might have on you, shame that you might have in you, you need to feel that before you can understand the medicine. Psalm fifty-one begins this way: David praying after he's been confronted by Samuel the prophet, not uh, Nathan the prophet, excuse me. And he's responding. He's responding in the word that we want to use called repentance. He says, "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out." My transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is, in a word, what repentance looks like. It's going to God to be cleaned. And here's how he's going to do it. I'm going to kind of break the psalm into a couple of pieces. The first one is that he does actually see his sin. And you and I, if you feel guilt, if there's a time when you feel shame... We can define shame lots of ways, but shame is a dirty feeling that we all know really well. If you have those things, if you felt that guilt, if you felt shame because of something you've done to a person, the Christian religion, the scriptures, the, the grace that God has given us in his revealed word invite us to look beyond that and see that there's actually a bigger problem than just what you did to that Person, or what you didn't do for that person. And that bigger problem is what you've done against him. I I don't want you to just feel better today. If you leave here with some sort of a placebo for your shame, that doesn't help anybody. We got to see it much more deeply if we're going to understand the real solution. So walk with me through. He continues in verse 3. The first thing we got to do here, we got to see. The sin. He says, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. David, uh, the writer of the psalm, is saying, I I understand what I've done. And then he takes a left turn. I, I don't know that many of us would have written this with the blood of Uriah in one spot and this illegitimate pregnancy with Bathsheba over here. But he says, Against you, speaking to God, against you and you only, Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. As he's walking through this sin, he begins by describing how his sin is first and foremost against God. It's against Uriah. It's against Bathsheba. If you go through and read the the story, it's against the people of Israel. And further soils the hands of Joab. But he says that his sin is really, truly against God. And even that it's only against God. Why does he say that? Well, because God is the foundation. He's the one who has given all of these rules. If you take God away, he didn't really do anything to Uriah or Bathsheba. I think it's very important for you to realize this. This is a great understanding. It's a great argument for why the the Christian religion is, is worth pursuing. It's worth having. If you don't have a God to establish what is right and what is wrong then what's left, if you don't have a God, what's left is the rules that are made by the strongest person. It's called social Darwinism. It's a, an implication of an evolutionary mindset that doesn't have a God in it. And we can talk all about the different kind of shades in between. But I'm just saying, if you, if you say there's no God, then what he did, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. He's the king. If Uriah couldn't stand up and protect Bathsheba, then, I don't know, David gets her. Might is right is a way of describing that system of morals. I hope you can shiver a little bit as you consider that idea. And I hope you understand why it's that much more important for us to be arguing for a God who is. A God who does set right from wrong. A God who has spoken. It's incredibly important, and I think it's important for us to understand as we look at David, as we look at ourselves, your sin against other people, while it may be the consequences of your sin that you feel most from other people. Then you say something, and now you've broken that relationship. So the consequence of, of what you said you're experiencing because of your pain in that relationship but even in that moment, you have to realize that your sin is first and foremost against a God who has set that standard. If you go to the Old Testament, right in the very beginning, this guy, Joseph, he's one of the kind of founding members of this family of Abraham that are going to be the people of Israel. He's taken into slavery at one point. He's a slave in the house of this Egyptian leader. And the guy's wife goes after him. She likes him. And he argues back against the temptation By saying, uh, he is not greater in this house than I am. The the Potiphar, the guy, the, the Egyptian leader, is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you because you are his wife. He's responding to this woman who is inviting him to adultery. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against you, sin against me, sin against the name of my father, sin against Potiphar? No. Sin against... God, when you and I have sinned, the number one relationship that has to be restored, the person who is most concerned, it's not the person you hurt. It's not you, and it's not this vision of yourself. It's God. David has come to see that, and he understands as he continues, not only is his sin against God, but it's a part of his character that has to be changed Fully. This wasn't a one-time slip. A guy named Derek Kinder is a commentary on the, the Psalms. Says, this crime David now sees was no freak accident. This isn't a problem that was a one-time thing. And you can tell yourself that to try and minimize your shame, Right? Well, I'm always a good guy. This was just a, you know, this just, uh, it just had happened this one time. These extenuating circumstances, the, the, the temptation was just so extraordinary. And this one, but that won't happen again. I'll never do that again. Have you said that and believed it ever? You can say that to try and get the other person to forgive you more quickly. But repentance involves truth. And the truth is that it was in David's character. An extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been and of the faulty stock he sprung from. Listen, if we're going to be clean, we can't be made clean by fixing one aspect of our behavior. You know, if you have mold in a house, you can't just scrape it off the top. You got to take off the drywall and see where else the mold is. Maybe you got to just gut the whole thing. Somebody presents with lesions. You got to figure out okay, we got to try and heal those lesions, but are they caused by something deeper? Because if we try to heal the lesions, but we don't affect the deeper illness, they'll just come back. I wonder this morning, if you have enough self-awareness, maybe you've been a part of the Christian church for some period of time and you have a sin in your life that re- regularly, it repeatedly comes up. Have you gotten to the point yet of asking the question about your repentance and the effectiveness of your repentance? Is it aimed at the right place? Yeah, We have to get to the right place. We have to understand the fullness of the problem. I think there's a part of you that can take the word repentance and the description of it and sort of build it like a prescription. I don't want to feel shame anymore, and so I'm going to go through the, the motions of what's called on to do for Christians. This is what you do. You take your slap on the wrist, and then you get back to doing what you want to do. I hope you were here last week. We talked all about that. These forms of sacrifice that are totally illegitimate. They don't actually lead to a contrite heart. They don't actually lead to a restored relationship with the Father. We've got to go deeper. You've got to see the sin. It's, it's your character. It's a big deal. And it's against God. And what's crazy is that though you have sinned against God, and you would think He would be the last person you would want to go and speak to, You assume he's going to be mad as a hornet. You assume he's sharpening the blade. You're not going to go to him with your sin, but that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Once you see the sin, you now need to ask the Lord, whom you have sinned against, to cleanse you. That's what David does. It says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. This is one of those times where if you read it, you get what he's saying. Dirty made clean there's a washing taking place fine but i would encourage you to go a little further with it again we've got an embarrassment of resources when it comes to understanding the bible if you speak english now there's a ton of languages that have a ton of stuff but english it's crazy you can quickly get answers to the kind of questions you're going to ask if you'll just read a little bit carefully that word hyssop uh, ah what what does that mean well it's a plant It was a plant that was used in very specific ways throughout the Old Testament. When they would cleanse somebody, let's say you had leprosy and you were cured, you were healed. That leprosy went away and you went from being somebody who was unclean or outside of the community back to being somebody who's part of the community. The final piece of that cleansing was for the blood of a sacrifice to be sprinkled on you by means of this hyssop branch. Dip it, sprinkle cleansed now again if you're not observing kind of the meaning you would say well no you're less cleansed just got blood all over my garments (laughs) among the things i have stained things with blood is a rough one i came in clean and now the priest is flicking blood all over me okay but the meaning of it the sacrifice that's taken place that takes away your uncleanness He's referring to something beautiful there. He's referring to something deep. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, another way to kind of render that, I mean, it's kind of a literal rendering that the bones would rejoice. Now, I've never had my bones sing before, but how do bones rejoice? They dance. Let the bones that you have broken dance. Do you see the opposites? On the one side is the totally decimated sinner in his shame. On the other, whatever this process is, that process, you put in the sinner, and on the other side of that process, that same person is dancing. I'm not going to dance. <laughs> you can just imagine. Imagine. Our world has never been fuller of little stupid dances that people do on the internet or whatever. Just imagine. But out of the joy that overflows, not out of the hope for likes, but I don't know if that's what happens on TikTok if you get likes or follows or what. Not in the hopes of views, but just out of the joy that overflows. Something's happened here. Do you understand how beautiful this process is? Do you understand why you should want it? To walk in with shame, to walk out with dancing? I don't know the last time you danced. Rachel catches me with food sometimes. We'll just be excited about what we're eating. And I'm kind of moving. She's like, are you dancing because you're excited about the meal? It's like, no. (laughs) But yeah, of course. I wasn't even hungry. I haven't been hungry in like years, but I just want that food. And so you dance a little bit. You're just excited about it. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about a restored joy that overflows and the very things that were broken have now become not only healed, but they, they praise. They're back in a right relationship with God. A love relationship with God. The process is not to make you clean so you can go back to doing whatever you want and maybe don't go as far next time. The process is to put you back in relationship with God. So you can have that love again. You can feel that presence again. So you can be with the one your soul is made for. It's very important to understand what this is driving towards. Number uh, Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is going to the very God that he sinned against for the cure. He's going to the judge whose law he has broken for forgiveness. Why would he do that? What about God made David think that God was also going to be the source of forgiveness, not just the source of right and wrong? Well, in verse 1, he talks about this God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. That steadfast love is the way the ESV translate the word for covenant love, promised love. It's a reflection back on the way that the whole of the Old Testament is painting this picture of God who wants to come and find again His people. Adam and Eve, as soon as we sin and separate ourselves from Him, the whole rest of the story of Scripture is God not being okay with that separation. Him coming to find us again. And that, that process, that covenant love, it's a great way to understand the whole of the Old Testament. We could walk through and look at those different covenants as different earmarks. But, but that covenant love is reflected on constantly in the Psalms. It's what gave David the confidence to go to the very God whose law he broke in order to be cleansed. And if we had the time, and I hope that if you come to Hope Church long enough, we'll get through the ways that the Old Testament points to it. But, but we don't have to do that today. We've got kind of like a, you could say it's a shortcut, In Jesus. Because all of that Old Testament imagery is pointing to, explaining, expanding on, giving a multi-sort of angled view on Jesus. So how we can come to the God that we have broken His law, the righteous judge who's looking down on us, the way that we can come to Him for Him to forgive us, the way He can be both just And the justifier of those that have broken his law is Jesus. Again, we're talking about famous verses in Scripture. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, the judge who sits over a broken and guilty humanity, so loved that humanity, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in Christ should not perish But have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is what's called the good news or the gospel of what Jesus has come to do. That He's come to make a way for you to have your sin erased and be made right again with God, so that your sin, that big giant thing that's stopping you from standing before holy God, is removed. And you can say to yourself, I mean, that's phenomenal, that's amazing, I hope that you think that, I hope that you believe that, but there's a lot of you that are Christians that say, I've already believed that, and yet you're not accessing it when it comes to the repeated sin in your life. You don't see how to connect that so that your repentance goes deeper than your skin and gets down into your heart to actually start changing some stuff. Have you ever heard somebody say this? You're not sorry you did it. You're sorry you got caught. Have you heard that phrase before? Oh, well, good. You're more godly than me. I think people could see right through my pretended uh, repentance. There are big crocodile tears that come when somebody's caught. Why? Because experience teaches you that if you seem remorseful, people will tend to be merciful. If you seem high-handed, people will tend to be more just. And so when you're caught and you know that person is going to bring consequence, what do you do? oh, I'm so sorry, and you let yourself go into this just sort of penitent look. And you're crying, and you look to see if they're looking, and then you keep crying. It's funny with kids, because they're not good at it. But it doesn't go away when you get older. If anything, it gets worse, because you stop understanding that you're doing it. You've lied to yourself enough that you actually believe it. How many Christians don't do repentance because that's what they do. A guy named Brian Chappell says it in a smarter way. He says, false repentance is less concerned with the spiritual contamination of sin than it is with the personal consequences of sin. Do you see the difference? True repentance is chiefly concerned with the wrong we have done to our Savior and to others. Repentance of the first kind is self-preoccupied. True repentance is a selfless seeking of spiritual fellowship and renewal. False repentance flees correction. True repentance seeks it. What's in your life? Okay, if you're willing to then accept that you want true repentance, how do you go about it? Christian, how do you go about actually doing this? This should happen every time you sin. So this should happen hundreds of times a day. How do you go about this repentance? This should be probably one of your easy skills. It seems like a basic of Christianity, but I don't know. Are we doing it? When you sin before a holy God and you come to him and plead for forgiveness, you need to have what David had. David had a confidence in God's steadfast love that he immediately seized upon and then received. How do you have that same confidence? Again, Jesus. It says in Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. We could do a whole series on repentance. I think it's just not only a common, like, regular move within Christianity, it's something that we screw up in a hundred different ways. And so you need, like, a hundred sermons on how to not do that wrong. But to do it right is probably a better focus. What he's saying is the first thing you should do is go back to the cross. See the one who died for you. Realize what your sin costs, what it results in. Feel a deep disgust that you would choose to do something that would make the author of life die. That would require not a hyssop branch with a little animal blood, but would require the blood of God. If you've died with him, you're no longer enslaved to sin. You've got to see it as it actually is. You've got to be set free from that sin. A lot of times when we think about sin, we think about the kind of things that we do that people think of as sin. But a lot of that stuff, a lot of that kind of addiction-y type stuff, a lot of that kind of overt sort of grossy type stuff, it's often something that we're also doing to not feel something else. You ever talk with somebody with addiction, the, the goal isn't just to stop the alcohol, to stop the pornography, to stop the drug use. Yeah, that's goal. That is a goal but you're also trying to help them understand why they're going to that other thing, why they're trying to not feel something else. The resources of the gospel are are your ability to feel release from that shame, to feel release from that anxiety, to feel release from that fear, to know that you've been put back into a right relationship with the God who can not only cleanse you, but protect you. Not only protect you, but love you. Put his name on you. Allow you to access the pictures of of parenting and marriage as primary examples of how he wants to relate to you. Can you understand how that would be healing to a heart? And then, of course, verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin And alive to God in Christ. As you're repenting, you're seeing your sin before a holy God, and yet you're remembering that he has totally paid for that sin. He died. You can put yourself on the cross with him and imagine the blood that should be shed for what you've done and has been shed by him. But you can also imagine the life that he has lived that you should have lived. That is now righteousness given to you put on you so that you're accepted by him the wow of that we just don't have time to sort of simmer in but i hope you're feeling and then he expresses what happens after the repentance after that transformation that's taking place it's not just joy that happens it's also a new life it says in verse 13 then i will teach transgressors your ways sinners will return to you Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Doesn't mean not to do the sacrifice, he means doing it the right way. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and the bulls will be offered on your altar. You have to do this. You got to see your sin. You got to go to God to be cleansed. You got to stop the sin. But the reason for all of this, the result of all of this, is joy. What would it feel like to really feel clean? (laughs) What would it feel like to really feel accepted? To really feel that joy? Unfortunately, the only way we can feel it is to understand just how much we've done that has to be forgiven. If hell isn't real, then the severity of God's love doesn't have to overcome much, does it? Jesus said it really clearly. The person who's been forgiven much loves much. It's going to be hard to live in this place where we're constantly remembering and turning over just the, the bad stuff in our life. But the Christian doesn't just have to stay there. They then go to the acceptance. Let's finish with this quote, kind of B.B. Warfield. He said, We're sinners, and we, are, we know ourselves to be sinners lost and helpless in ourselves. But we are saved sinners, and it is our salvation which gives tone to our life, a tone of joy which swells in exact proportion to the sense we have of our ill-desert, of the fact that we don't deserve it. For it is God to whom, oh, I'm sorry, it is He to whom much is forgiven who loves much and who loving rejoices much. Pursue this repentance. Feel this joy and see your life changed. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you'd give us the grace to understand repentance. That you'd give us the grace to understand the love that you have for us and the forgiveness you've offered us through Christ. I pray that if there are people this morning who are evaluating Christianity, you would give them the grace to ask deeper questions. To understand that there has to be a moral authority in the universe. There has to be. And if there is, is it the Yahweh of Scripture? Is it the Christ of the New Testament? And if it is, Lord, let them see the beauty of what it is to be forgiven by that Jesus, to be accepted by that love. For those of us who already know you, Father, I pray that you would teach us true repentance. The enemy is going to constantly try to undermine our repentance so that we stay in our sin and stay separated from you. I pray instead, Father, that you would give us the equipment let today be a beginning, a, a beginning of a study on, Lord, that we would pursue skill in, taking our sin to You, seeing it as it is and being forgiven, that the broken bones will begin to rejoice, that Hope Church will be a place of joy. Not happy-go-lucky, pretend like everything's okay, Pharisee joy, but deep in our bones, made new, forgiven joy that erupts, so that all the world sees what it is to be yours. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.